Hi and hello Watchmans and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. I'm flying solo this week, Alon is over in the Netherlands and I am in a Manchester hotel room with my good friend Anders Brandt, the co-founder of Arcanaut. Welcome to England, Anders. Thank you. You flew in from Copenhagen this morning so that we could have a three-day powwow regarding the upcoming Arcanaut launch of the Dark Matter Colors Collection, which is coming out on Saturday the 23rd of September. It will go live, the pre-sale that is, at 7pm. We'll dig into the specifics of that later on. But right now, for all of our listeners and all of those in the TRTS network, give us the backstory of Arcanaut. How did you come to watchmaking? How did your journey begin? And what's it been like so far? It's a long story, but basically it started uh, with me and a buddy in a bar. We started Arcanaut with the thought of creating something different perspective of Nordic design. Okay. And actually the company started out as a, a totally different company called Goldemann Brand. <laughs> Very pretentious sounding, <laughs> I know. And that first attempt of creating a watch brand uh, totally failed. And out of that grew Arcanaut because just before I was closing Goldman Brand, I had my own idea of how I wanted a watch to look like. So not a design by a kitchen full of cooks, you could say, but just my own vision. So I said, you know, before we close down, let's just try a new design, scratch the Goldman Brand idea for now, and then start over. Mm-hmm. And then we made some renders of the watch that I had in mind and uh, we basically put it up on a group on Facebook called Danske Wurtosser which is a Danish watch nerd you know we're we're starting this company and if you want in you can start uh, you know pre-ordering for a discount now and we had the first 10 sales within a few days and this was based primarily almost entirely on your case design yeah exactly so it was basically the, the, the case design that was the major difference Mm -hmm. at that point we still didn't know actually how we would manufacture it or anything we were of course open about that but that that was basically it you know the different case was basically my vision that i wanted to do something different with the case design because you see a lot of watches out there where you know the focus is mainly on dial or the movement or the hands but there's not a lot of innovation on on the case design or the crown design or the strap design. Like the things that actually make up most of the watch, that's the tactile experience in a way of the watch. So I was like, let let me try to do something different with that. Of course, when we then tried to make the watch, I found out why you don't do innovations on, on the case design and the strap because that's hugely costly. Mm. You know, as soon as you do something... Uh, you know that can't be machined on a uh, on a normal three axis uh, CNC machine, then it becomes extremely expensive. You know, uh, and we found that out. So basically, that those uh, pre orders that came in, we actually ended up paying more to manufacture the watches than we got in. So, uh, and uh, so the first attempt also there, you could say it was. A financial, not a success, but in a way it showed that there was a market for people that actually wanted something different in that way. And of course, over time, Arknot as a brand has evolved a lot. This was eight years ago, basically. And uh, and back then, we got 
uh, our parts and our watches made in Switzerland. And then also when, when we were done making the watches, the manufacturers said, okay, now you've got the sam- 30 samples, 31st samples. Now you need to order 500 pieces. Jeez. So they just jumped up the MOQ out of nowhere, basically. Uh, well, it was, you know, we, we used a middleman and I think that was mm-hmm. kind of like a, a communication error, you could say. So now we needed to either go out, find an investor and invest in something where you only sold like 30 watches and uh, sell him on a vision of, okay, we can sell actually 500 pieces. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that that was probably not going to happen. And we also talked to a lot of investors and they were, of course, like, uh, well, crazy. And also when they looked at the margins. I mean, that's a really key point because the usual luxury market margin works on a times six or times eight basis from the cost price of manufacturing. And when you're doing something ambitious with the case design, using complex CNC in that you can't get off the shelf, then you open up this huge like area of pitfalls where you can just throw plenty of good money after bad to try and like stay on top of the production costs and how do you make money out of that while keeping it affordable for people well not only the the manufacturing costs but also you know the the thing that really surprised me are also the development costs because the thing that i drew you know on a piece of paper uh, like fairly simple technical drawing. I have a background as a, a as a commander, so I, I just drew it out as I would a you know a, a sketch of a building basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, taking that to a technical drawing that you can actually see in mill with the right tolerances and everything, that's hugely hugely costly as mm-hmm. well. And uh, you know, then you have tooling costs because it's not like setting up, you know, and then you're just paying a price for one one piece. It's basically you're paying for the setup of the machine, you're paying yeah. for the machi- uh, tooling cost and everything. So that was, you know, also a massive eye-opener in a way. From that, we found out, okay, we need to do things differently because we can't find an investor. So then one of the guys that actually helped me design the case, uh, I designed the case together with it, a guy that works for the biggest hearing aid company in Denmark. Mm-hmm. And it was like, you know, the tolerances we have here uh, are roughly the same as we use in the hearing aid industry, and we have tighter tolerances even. So I have a list here you can get of all our manufacturers, mm-hmm. and you can try to contact them to get the, the parts machine that made and everything. So in Denmark, that in was. Denmark, okay. So that was a big shift because originally you'd had the cases Swiss made. You'd run into this situation where the costs were completely prohibitive. But then the solution was not only finding a new supplier, but it turned out it was about bringing manufacturing home. Exactly. So that was basically what we did, and and you know a lot of problems also come from that. You know because then you need to figure out you need to basically re-engineer everything the Swiss had made and the Swiss companies that manufactured the, all, all the first parts didn't want to give us the technical drawings. Oh, really? Yeah, they held on to them because they wanted you to place that big order for so, 400k. So we were basically held at ransom in a way to pay them for the technical drawings. So some of it we got back and then other things we need to, needed to re-engineer uh, to manufacture in Denmark. 
And when it came to that, I also knew, okay, we need to take the company in a totally different direction in a way, because now we're taking manufacturing home. We need to, you know, what, one of the most difficult things to make on a watch is the dials, you know, and I've been to where dark ones, our first watch where the dials got manufactured in Switzerland and it's multiple complicated processes to make one, one dial. Yeah. And I knew that's not something we can do in the same way in Denmark, at least not with the things we had at hand. So I knew, okay, we need to figure out a way to make new types of dials. And the idea then came to my head to talk to James, James Thompson of Black Badger, because I've knew, known him since, you know, the early days at the Salon QP, eating him there. And also he helped, helped with the loom on the Arc 1. So I basically took, you know, a train to Gothenburg, from Copenhagen to Gothenburg, met up with James and offered him to join the company because uh, I, I've seen him work with multiple co watch companies before, but in my mind, I was like, he's probably never been offered to actually be part of the company. Right. Uh, and you know this as well from, you know, working with multiple brands. That's not something you usually get offered. But for me, it's like, I would rather own 1% of a huge success than owning, you know, 90% of a failure. Mm -hmm. And I knew I needed to get, you know, wise people on board. So I chatted to James about the dials and what we came up with is basically, you know, a new method for manufacturing dials where we basically uh, take a piece of material and then we machine the material instead of, you know, taking a brass template and then moving it throughout a, a lot of different processes to make it look like that material. Right. So actually work with the source material itself exactly so i guess if you're working with the raw materials then you either have to be sympathetic to their natural variance or come up with an idea or a method that allows you to homogenize that material across multiple dials and then across multiple materials and multiple iterations thereof so you're not actually machining raw stone are you you're processing it first to make something that is a millable block you have to make a composite, basically. So basically, what we do is we call it reconstituting. Yeah. You know, we take a take a material, then we pull it apart by you know smashing it basically, and James fills it through you know an industrial coffee grinder with the dark matter, for example, mm -hmm. and then we reconstitute it into a plate, basically, that we then get a company in Copenhagen uh, that's called Swartz, which is. Uh, uh, a raw engraver in Copenhagen to then machine the dials in the design that we want. So instead of, if you look at an Arcano dial, it doesn't have pad printing or anything like that. The logo is basically engraved is the dial into the material. The minute markers is engraved into the material, which gives a, gives a whole different look to the dials. Because it's basically taking the purest form of the material and only doing so little to it. So you can get that real character shining through on the wrist in a way that a dial that's gone through the more traditional processes, the multi-step, very specific processes that you described, can never really hope to match. And you're able to do it consistently 
because these reconstituted blocks of millable material are reliable, they're molecularly stable, they can be put through a machining process. Yeah, it's stable. You get the same look for each dial, but it's still different. Mm. You know, there's never going to be one dial that's the same. And that's also the interesting thing because it's still a living material, you mm-hmm. would say. Like if you take slate stone as with the dark matter, put it through a coffee grinder and then reconstitute it and then machine it, that dial from afar, it will look the same. But if you look up close, that wearer of the watch, you will know, okay, that's where that little, you know, speck of this is and that is and this is. So every dial is different, and I love that. You know, that is, you know, part of the charm about doing things like we do. So let's walk through the collection as it was and as it soon will be and as it will be in the future. So the the ARC-1 was really a proof of concept, and that used a traditionally made dial, and that came before getting James on board officially, and it came before the Dark Matter, which was the first composite dial you produced which is crushed Swedish slate, which is then reconstituted into a millable block and has this wonderful dark high contrast um, appearance, which people love the brand for. Then you went on to experiment with Fordite, which is, for all of our listeners that don't know, a byproduct of the automotive industry, specifically in the latter part of the 20th century in American car factories, where components were sprayed with paint in a paint chamber, the overspray would accumulate on the walls and the floors and the tools and the jigs, and over time it would cure into an almost rock-like substance that can be cut through and finished, almost like a gemstone itself, right? But each one of those nodes of, well, car paint is completely unique, totally inimitable, a time capsule, and it's a finite amount of this stuff because... True Fordite used these older, heavier paints, right, which now have been replaced by, well, safer paints, shall we say, but they don't cure in the same way. They don't result in the same material. And Fordite is quite clearly a unique piece every single time, every slice, completely different. And James works on that with his hands on a lapping wheel, can you tell us about that process and the stumbling blocks throughout it and the the kind of emotional torture of working with a material like that? You could say Fordite is the exact opposite of Dark One because Dark One is basically, you know, the most purest thing is designed minimalist and everything. And then the Fordite is, you know, the wildest mm. thing, but it's still constri- constrained because it's inside, you know, the Arcanaut case. That's actually what makes it even more interesting because you have that contrast. Mm. If, if for example, the case was you know made in in some wild material as well, uh, in Damascus steel or something like that, it will look totally different and and really bonkers. But it is because you have that contrast. And as many things we do in Arknot, it's something that evolves. You know, it's not like every time we make a new. Uh, watch that we sit down and then plan out, okay, it's going to be strategically over here and then we need to go here. We do that, of course, now that we have a structured person like you on board. <laughs> but for the Fordite and with a lot of the things we do, 
we make watches for ourselves. So actually, the way that the Fordyte watch evolved was because James's dad had his birthday, and James wanted to give him his uh, an art one. And uh, then we talked about. He talked about, okay, can I can I put like a Fordyte dial inside? Because my dad loved cars, and you know that that would be a cool thing. So I was like, oh yeah, let's try it. Uh, it's just a one-off piece, and it just looks so cool. Like it really like the contrast between you know the clean lines of the dark case and then the wild patterns. It is like you say, it's like peering through time. Mm. It's uh, you know seeing the lines of every car that's been painted over many many years. It's a guy that you know took his kids to school and went home like forty years ago, mm. and that's you know just captivated me, you know when looking at that. And then when James's dad got it, all his friends at his cigar club <laughs> saw it, yeah, and were like, "Can we get what? Hey, where can we buy it?" Because before Fordite was one of Arthur calling cards, James had had a very small run of watches made with Takoya as well, right? Yeah. Using Fordite dials. Yeah. And I remember that this this whole situation with James wanting to gift his dad the watch occurred around the time I visited you both in Gothenburg for the yeah. first time when I was with Fratello. And I remember you were still in this phase of deciding whether or not you wanted to pull Fordite into the Arcanaut collection. And I had seen the Tag Heuer Carrera models that James had done and I had not seen at that time until we were there in Gothenburg together a Fordite dial in an Arcanaut case and the minute I saw it from a journalistic perspective I was like okay this is this is heaven because just as you said that conscious tension of design between the two elements the case and the dial was beautifully balanced you had this this material which was too powerful for the Carrera case there wasn't enough to hold it in check it was it was just a bit wild and then for some reason when you put it next to your acetic case design which is very quintessentially Nordic in design I would say it, it has this gravitas but this quiet power to it which allowed the Fordite to really explode out of the dial but not overawe its surroundings and uh, I think I remember saying you you guys have to do this i think you knew you were going to do it anyway you were on that slope but i was like please do this because i want to write about it and then i became a customer yeah. which i was a customer before we worked together yeah that's true and i i i forget that sometimes and whenever i remember it i feel like very proud of myself for putting my money where my mouth was because it's very easy when you're a watch journalist to sort of say a lot of things and be hyperbolic about new releases and say oh, this is the greatest watch ever i'm gonna buy it you say that 10 times throughout Geneva watch days and if you actually did what you said you'd be about 2.3 million in the hole you know so you have to be very selective about what you buy and as journalists we're also often offered discount which I have accepted in the past but I didn't ask for from you exactly. nor was I offered it <laughs> I, I wouldn't have taken it anyway because I did take it once from a small brand a brand that I love very very much and I never forgave myself for it. And I, I saw what you and James were doing. And I was mostly I was a fan of your case design. There's a case design that really pulled me into Arcanor. Because I I knew what you didn't know when you went to the manufacturers firsthand and realized why people aren't innovative in casing design and pushing the boat out. 
And so what I saw was an incredible effort to, yeah, design something new, which in this era, post-quartz crisis, is pretty damn rare. In the 70s, there was a heyday of odd case shapes and whatnot. But since then, we haven't really had so much of it. And now you've done that, I just had to say, okay, I want to believe in this brand. If Arcanaut were to cease to exist in five years' time, it would be a great loss to the watchmaking industry. And I don't want to be one of those guys that sits on his hands and says, oh, I wish that brand still existed, but didn't put my money on the table when it mattered. So that's why I went for it. And I've never, ever regretted it because it wears like nothing else. And the the camaraderie between all of us that own Arcanauts is, is great. It's like a little family, a tribe as we call it now. And um, it's a it's a mutual understanding. Like it's, it's next level watch collecting. It's when you've gone through all of the nonsense. You've gone through the Rolexes. You've gone through the Pateks and the Speedmasters. And you've got a deeper appreciation of what true novelty and true exceptionalism is. And that's it. The question and we'll leap ahead to this now because it's on, on my mind, is what will you do in the future from a horological perspective? Because you are already an industry leader aesthetically. How do you match up the watchmaking with the looks of the watch? Well, it's it's an interesting question because, you know, a lot of people are like, why aren't you putting, you know, an expensive movement in, in the watch? Or why haven't you looked into that? We have looked into that, of course. But I think a very important part of you know, creating a part in having the inception of a brand is that you recognize that you can't be innovative on everything at the same time. You can't focus on everything at the same time. You have to focus on some things to be the best at in the world and then leave some things to be developed or take the illusion. And I think you know, now we are at a point in brand's history where we can actually, you know, we have, we actually have a bit of experience and we can do things that we couldn't do before. And also we are at a point where the market, I think, is ready also for an Arcanaut, where we do some more horological different things, I would say. I won't go into exactly what it is because, you know, that that is to be revealed, but very soon we will reveal something in, in that area. After the Fordite pieces, or not after the Fordite pieces, because they still exist, and if any of our listeners haven't seen these Fordite pieces, you can find them on either Arcanaut's Instagram, which is at Arcanaut underscore watches, or the website www.arcanaut.watch. Go up there, have a look at the Fordite pieces that we have on the Instagram and on the website. And if you're interested in seeing new pieces as they make it out of James's workshop in Gothenburg, then sign up for one off the notification mailing lists and you'll be kept in the loop. So they're always going to be, well, not always going to be, they're going to be part of Arcanaut's story until Fordite runs out, I guess. And it is running out, right? There's a finite material. There's not so much of it. It's not being made anymore. So it's just... A question of how long can we keep getting our hands on the good stuff and how long can James keep finding the treasure within each piece? Yeah, because it's it's also an interesting part is there's a finite amount. Nobody knows how much it is. It's like oil, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's not a lot of good of it out there. Yeah. You can take two pieces of Fortnite and you won't get anything interesting out of one of the pieces because most cars are white, black, and red. You know, so you get that. That's also interesting color combination in some, but it's 
to get the actual pieces, the actual dials that are actually interesting with the right patterns and, you know, the right colors, it takes a lot of time and there's not a lot of material we can get that out of. Mm, mm. Like, and you can look at other, you know, there are other brands that have tried, you know, Fortnite, and it's just, in my opinion, the dials are boring because they don't have the experience working with the material that James has. Yeah. Uh, can I say something about, you know, the the case that I forgot to mention? Of course. Uh, so the reason why the case looks so different is actually when I sat down and drew the case, in my mind, I, kind of, I listed up, you know, what is the experience of a watch? Uh-huh. And like... The first experience of watch is when you either see it, you know, in a commercial or something, or you see somebody else sitting with it on the wrist. Right. You know, from afar. What you notice from afar isn't the dial or the hands or anything like that. It's the case. Yeah. You know, it's the shape of the case that you recognize. So what I wanted to create is an easy recognizable case that haven't been done before. Mm -hmm that you could recognize from in a room, you know, uh, 50 feet apart from the person wearing the watch. And then, you know, you go up to the person, and then the second experience is the story. Mm -hmm. The story that person tells you about the watch, even before you try to wear it, you know, okay, this is made out of fortite. This is made out of this material, something. There's a story behind the watch. I, I got this watch from my dad. That's the second second experience of the watch. Then there's the experience when you wear the watch. That's, you know, the part where uh, things like, can you tell the time? And, you know, how how does the finishes look? And everything, that's the experience. How does it wear? Yeah. So that's kind of like the way that I design watches is through those three, you know, levels. Well, it's very interesting to hear. And, I, I you know, after... 10 years writing about watches, I have a few stock phrases that I, I drop in articles all the time. Obviously, loom homogeny is probably the most common and also relevant to Arcanaut itself. And what is the one James always laughs at me for? Thematic congruence yeah. or something? I can't remember. Um, but one of the key things I talk about is an identifiable silhouette. And that's exactly what you did. If you had like a, a just outlines of an Arcanaut yeah. next to like a Submariner, next to a Speedmaster, next to a Nautilus, for example, a Royal Oak, you know instantly what that watch is. And even more than those classics that I mentioned, the Arcanaut case, the art, as it were, stands out because of its extremely ambitious crown design. Now, we nicknamed this the Pentablock quite recently. That's its new name. So if anyone hasn't seen the Pentablock crown, go and check it out. If you have a better name, please hit right to us. <laughs> I like that name. <laughs> <laughs> info at arcanaut.dk we are accepting submissions tell us about the crown and tell us about the difficulties in manufacturing it and what the swiss thought of your idea when you first proposed it to them well so the crown is part of of you know that idea of it being uh, you know different from afar but also to have a different experience when you wear it because what i was tired of wearing watches and you get you know the red dot uh, on your wrist from the like a big crown or, or something. And also, if you look at every watch and write up, you know, what's common on watches, you know, you have two, you have, a, you know, an hour hand, a minute hand, and a second hand, and then you have, 
you know, a crown and the crown is round and locks, things like that. And I, I was writing all of those things down. And then I, for example, said, I don't want locks mm. uh, and I don't want a crown, a usual round crown. So I just drew, you know, a square crown and I was like, ah, oh, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe it can become like a button or something or, you know, and then I devised like this thing where you can pull it out and it's so tightly machined that you, it kind of feels like a magnet. Yeah. And, you know, when the Swiss her, you know, saw that they were like, impossible. <laughs> you know, that, that will be so insanely expensive to manufacture because the tight tolerances on that. And I was like, you know, I, I was kind of like just in the mind and said, how, how expensive can that be? So I was like, let's do it. And I okay. didn't, you know, until I got the invoice and I was like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is unbelievably well machined. And the craziest thing about that crown is that it's guaranteeing 100 meters of water resistance. Yeah. Which is nuts. People look at that and they go, oh, it's an artsy watch and therefore it's going to be water resistant to 30 meters max. And you see major, major, major brands with decades, sometimes centuries of experience releasing a watch in steel in 2023 with 30 meters water resistance or 50 meters water resistance. And you've got a square-sided crown with 100 meters. It's not screwed down, obviously. It pushes in, it locates back into the case. Like you say, it does feel like a magnet. That's actually a good way of describing it. It's not magnetized. It's just a gasketed crown that is so well machined that it can give you that everyday wearability, which is, I think, a huge, maybe hidden selling point of Arcanor. You know, funnily enough, last week, we interviewed Jean-Christophe Sabatier of Ulysse Nadam. Lovely man. You would really enjoy talking to him, I'm sure. And I asked him about his private watch collection, and he has four Ulysse Nadams. One of them is a freak. Okay? You know the freak. Yeah. Yeah. And he described it as his most versatile watch. And I had said, I said on the episode, anyone that hasn't listened to that episode yet, go back and check it out. It's a good one. It was recorded live in Geneva with Jean-Christophe. I said, most people would imagine the Freak is the kind of watch that they couldn't even see themselves wearing in any situation, yeah. let alone so many situations. Jean-Christophe was saying that he would run with it. He does his sport with it. Yeah. He goes camping at the weekend or to the to the cabin in the woods wearing a Freak. And I, this is an unbelievable piece of high-end horology. Meanwhile, the Arcanaut Art 2, especially like the upcoming Dark Matter Colors collection, which we'll talk about in a moment, is despite being extremely unique, and obviously that's a very overused word, but we mean it in this case, it's so wearable and it can be so many things. You know, it's got a rubber strap, it's comfortable, you can actually run with it, it's water resistant, you can jump into a lake if you want to. It's cool enough to take to like an art gallery opening, for example, because it's high brow design. So... I don't know, like the watch is able to become many things on many wrists and you're able to do an immense amount with it by playing with either the dial material or perhaps in the future also the case material while letting the dial take the back seat for once. Is that in your plans for the future? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a leading question, Rob. <laughs> well, yes, it is. Okay, jolly good, jolly good. You know, the interesting thing about Fordite was that it kind of made me question what the brand was. Okay. In what way? 
Because like when we look back and see the articles that you, for example, wrote about yeah. Argonaut way back, you know, everything was about, you know, Scandinavian design and, you know, legibility was like a big thing. And when I saw the first Fordine, like in the middle, it made me question, well, maybe not all watches need to be, you know, made equally legible and everything. And when I talked to one of my friends who also is actually a part owner of, of Arcanaut, who was telling me how his dad uh, used to not wear a watch in weekends and on vacation. Okay. Because it was like, well, why do I need to know the time? And it kind of like made me think not all watches need to always tell you the time exactly. I know that a lot of people might disagree with me but try on a watch where it's like well i, I would say you know on on the fordite you can't tell time very effectively but it's not as effective as you know uh, the dark matter for example no, no of course but it's not made to it's made for you know if you go on vacation i wear my fordite you know in the weekends because it's like okay that's a fun weekend watch mm. that you wear and where I don't care if I've spent three hours with my girlfriend going out because it's like, why care? You know? Yeah. So it, time can be different, different watch designs and legibility. And that made me question, you know, the brand in a way. And I, I think almost all our, our you know, our, our uh, watches should do that. And when you say, are we going to do, something different with the case, it's also something that pulls into question what Arcanaut is, because in the beginning I was like, well, we should do dials that are different materials, and then have, you know, the case be the same, like the canvas, the clean canvas every time. But then I was like, you need the balance, if you have the balance. Yeah. And that was what I was coming to through all the, the, the rant about legibility, is that what you need on the Fordite dial, the reason why we don't have indices on and everything is because we tried it and it looks like shit <laughs> because you don't have the balance. Mm. You know, if you put indices on something that's as wild as Fordite, it will look totally like, it, it looks like shit, sorry. As a square peg in a round hole, right? You don't want to do that. Exactly. And it's like, you know, why even do that to, you know, disrupt the material because it's an art piece you want the full, full view of and as wild as Fortnite is as long as you have that balance of things yeah it works and if when we do you know a case in something wild mm -hmm. then the balance needs to follow yeah what I usually say is that Arcanaut is contained madness. Yeah. Because it's wild materials that's balanced by something else. Like, mm. it's contained. Mm. If we had total wildness, it would be a totally different brand, but because we contain it. So, when we're doing, you know, a wild material for the case, then the dial needs to be totally, 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 totally quiet. Yeah. As equally as subtle as the case is wild. Yeah, that's a perfect way to place it. I mean, you are 
as you expressed early on, allowing yourself and the designs to be led by the material. You're not trying to force it because it's, uh, like you said, a living thing almost. Like you have to uh, negotiate with it rather yeah. than like dictate to it. And that is a fascinating thing to witness in the design process. I remember months ago now, you and I had a had a big conversation about the concept of playing with the case. And, uh, or should we say, I think the conversation started because I was like, well, why don't you just walk back the dials entirely? That was where it started, right? So yeah. I, I wanted to see like basically plain dials, just pure dials. So the case was the star of the show. Because for me, the case was always the, the main selling point because of its ergonomics and because of its identifiable silhouette and the fact that you really had put like so much of the brand's capital into that design. But you said, well, working on the concept of the brand as one of contained madness, there wasn't enough madness there, that the watch was dull, that it was quiet, that it was boring in a way, because there wasn't that balance. It was all quiet. It was all turned down. Yeah. Because then you miss one of the levels that I right. talked about. Right. You're missing the second level. You're missing the story. Mm. There's no, yeah, you can tell the story of, hey, this is just a simple design. But there's no story about, well, this came from this and this was, was something before or it had a story and now it has a new life. Yeah. And that's a very interesting thing because you're not, you're not telling a story for the sake of it. It's not some kind of spin or marketing or some chat GPT generated press release that we see coming out of Japan constantly. It's actually, it's just a, it's a philosophy of design to put the why before the what and to not make a product, but to make a journey on the wrist. Because I've, I made the mistake and I fully hold my hands up here and I, the conversation we had as a result of that uh, desire of mine was extremely illuminating and helped, I think, consolidate my vision of oh what the brand is like it, it helps sort of express it in a really tangible way because i was designing the product that's what i was doing yeah. i was thinking okay i was looking at the collection i was thinking you know what this brand needs it needs a core it needs a base it needs like a lower level it needs something that just exists to show what the brand is but it isn't the star and it isn't necessarily the most commercial it's a touch point but what i was getting wrong was that that isn't what the brand is. And that what the brand needed was correct, but what that actually was, wasn't. And now, and we'll talk about the novelties, we're about to see that with the launch of the Dark Matter Colors collection, which is effectively a new foundation for the brand as it moves into its next phase of evolution. Because there's a lot of exciting stuff coming. There's more composites coming this year. You will have already seen the Havender composite. That's the purple dial with a slightly off-white champagne-ish colored loom uh, that has been debuted on the Instagram page and also on the website. And there will be a white dial coming soon, which we're going to unveil imminently. And then some more horological experimentation further down the line. But right now, the dark matter material, the Swedish slate composite is returning, but with some updates and a different sales strategy. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, when we first set out to make uh, the first dark matter, which uh, were basically the first model we made in Denmark. So that that was like a rebirth of the company, you could say. Mm. The thinking at that point wasn't, okay, we're going to use that material again. But throughout the process of also making the four dots, what we realized is 
the more we work with a material, the more we understand it, and the more we can use it for different things mm -hmm. and be an evolution and, and also be a stable in our collection, in the way we present our brand. And, you know, dark metal is just such a fantastic material. As uh, Asher, our, our retailer in the US, uh, usually say it's so piratey. Piratey, yeah. 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 You know, the slate stone is taken from like this big fountain outside James's uh, apartment. So <laughs> it's basically where he chips off pieces and then he feeds those pieces through an industrial coffee grinder and then reconstitutes it and then it gets sent to Denmark. We machine it in Copenhagen into dials and uh, then we put it through some processes, some uh, treatments and then uh, loom it uh, as the end thing. And I think, you know, having that staple of the composites, yeah. the different composites, also developing new composites, like the Havendor, for example, is important for a brand. And working with those composites over time, that it's it's basically materials only known through Argonaut. Yeah. You know, it's a material that you can only get through Argonaut. It, it, it's something people know through Argonaut. Oh. It's the dark metal. It's the having the material. Mm -hmm. And it has a certain look that you can't get anywhere else. I think that's super important. Yeah. I mean, a, a brand can hang its hat on that and that alone, really. I mean, if you want this material, if you want this aesthetic, if you want this case shape, there is only one place to go. Very, very few brands can really say that on all levels of design. It's quite interesting that you've managed to achieve that. So tell us about the models in the Dark Matter Colors collection. What do we got? So we got the Pongo Orange, <laughs> which is, uh, hey, well, the name is uh, your idea and the baby, but in my baby, <laughs> the Pongo Orangutan, so it's orange, right? That was the idea. And it has this McLaren orange. Yeah, it's a really nice shade. Eh? Uh, and it's a, a shade that uh, that James has developed with uh, Super Luminova in Switzerland. A, uh, you know, a loom color that's specific for him. He's been using it in his rings. The interesting thing is you don't see a lot of orange loom because it's actually a pretty new thing that you can even do that because as, so as soon as you introduce red mm. into the spectrum, then, you know, your output becomes shit. Yeah. So it's a new solution actually to create orange loom that actually works well. And it is of the four, because there's the Badger Blue, the Gamma Green, and the Hornet Yellow. Yeah. It's the weakest emission of the four, but it's probably the strongest orange loom that you're going to find yeah. in the watch industry. Yeah. And like you say, James has developed these colors with RC Tritech in Switzerland for use in his jewelry, but now obviously they've been brought over to Arkanor, so you won't see these colors anywhere else. Not these specific shades, okay? You will see green loom and blue loom, but not Badger Blue and not Gamma Green. Yeah. And Hornet Yellow, that's actually my personal favorite. You know, I love uh, the sort of warning sign look of it. And that, that is also pretty cool. My personal favorite is the Gamma Green. That's yeah, interesting. I think it's just so, you know, uh, it's something I would recognize from afar. Yeah. Very easily. The thing with me, because I think the green was probably my favorite when I first saw it all put together. And I think it was because it felt like it was a watch I'd seen before. Of all of them, it was like, okay, that makes sense. Like that's the core model. That's the corest of the core for 
or you could say the blue would be like the logical choice, but for me, the green just looked like it had always been in existence. And the yellow and the orange are funky because you don't see yellow and orange looms very often at all. And the blue is cool because it's just, you know, really like crisp and professional. And with the strap options we've got now, that blue is really versatile. Because there's eight strap colors, right? So there's red, white, brown, sort of olive green, uh, orange, Bondi blue, which is like our beautiful sort of turquoise ocean blue color. And dark blue. Yeah, navy, void blue, and then black. Yeah. And with the blue watch, with the Badger blue model, you could put it on the void blue, you could put it on the Kakara orange, you could even put it on the on the white or the brown or the black. And maybe the only one that doesn't fit really, really well is the green, because even the red provides a nice contrast. It's very sporty. So, I mean, that's a versatile mm-hmm. watch. It's like seven different watches in one if you buy all the straps. I'm always interested, you know, in why people buy something from you. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe strongly that people, you know, there's, there's kind of this way of designing things where you do it basically on a piece of paper where you say, it needs to be this price, it needs to do this, uh, do this because then it can compete with this. And, you know, people want this, this and that. And I am a strong believer in, especially with watches, that people fall in love almost at first sight. Mm-hmm. And then they will make comments to themselves about why they should buy it. Okay, they'll justify. They will justify it afterwards. Okay. So if you fall in love with something, might not buy it like right away. Yeah. You know already I'm going to own that shit some, someday. Yeah. Properly. And it is interesting to hear a lot of the times why what people justify things with for example you know the straps and everything if i saw something saw a watch that i really like i don't care you know we talk about this a lot of times like if i bought an fbns don't have the money for that right now but if i bought an mbnf wouldn't care if it came in the sock (laughs) (laughs) so the box means nothing to it and you know i wouldn't really care about the strap either interesting there's a lot of the things that we justify things with that might not really be the reason that we buy it. Like we buy it at first sight because we fall in love with it. Yeah. It's like, you know, you fall in love with your girlfriend or wife. You you look at something and then you fall in love with it. And then you say, okay, I want that. And then you're going to justify it over time. Like, okay, I can't buy it because now I'm missing that in my collection. Mm. It is interesting to analyze, and obviously we have to do that, like in our in our roles in the industry, like analyze why people make the purchasing decisions that they do. But I think you're right that so often it is just a purely emotional response. Yeah. And, you know, maybe our job is to add as many justifying factors to a watch as we can so that people can rationalize that emotional response and just go ahead and do it. And like I say, you know pretty soon if you want to buy an Arcanaut or not, it's not a watch that keeps people on the fence very easily. You know, there's a lot to it. It's not boring in any way whatsoever. But knowing things like 100 meter water resistance, automatic movement, you know, easily serviceable, uh, 42 hour power reserve, 28,800 VPH, that kind of thing, eight different straps. You know, you can wear this watch anywhere. You can knock it about because, you know, we have a good team of watchmakers in, in Denmark that can sort out any issues that you encounter with your watch. So, you know, they do matter, those things. They do matter. They 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 do matter, but I think, you know, I just saw, you know, with the release of the Mad, Mad One Green. Oh, yeah. 
I saw an article where it said uh, water resistance, and then it said uh, it doesn't matter for a watch like this. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, that is uh, that is a good point. And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. Like you, you know, it, it, it's like those are the things that that rational rationalize the decision you have already made. Yeah, in the back of your mind. You know, I also want you know a water resistant watch because then I can you know, wear it and in, wear it and things like that. But I think most of the times, watches are an emotional thing. Yeah. You know, it's an emotional decision that you make. Like, right away, it's like law, falling in love. Yeah, but there's a couple of things to that, like, that I think are a, a little deeper that are worth a, a discussing, at least. And take the mad one, for example. So to, to make a throwaway comment, like, it doesn't matter for a watch like this, is a bold statement in itself. It's not to say it doesn't matter. It's to say, like, if you're not buying this watch because of its 30 meters water resistance or whatever, then who are you? Like, no. what do you think it is? You know, and that that's a watch that is highly unlikely to be any watch buyer's first or only watch. Yeah, it's a very special, very specific product. Why I think these stats matter is not so much because it's why people buy them and maybe not even why they don't buy them but because certain portions of the enthusiast community shall we call them keyboard warriors or trolls will leap on new brands that have a price point that puts that brand in direct competition with established powerhouses so for example an arcanaut dark matter colors watch is 3950 US dollars excluding taxes. That's the same price as a Tudor. It's the same price as like uh, some Aquaterras from Omega. You know, it's not an insignificant amount of money. It's not a 500 euro uh, fashion watch or even a 1500 euro entry level piece. It's proper money. The irony, of course, is we know this from being on the other side of the business that the margin on the Arcanaut is way, 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 way lower than on the Tudor, partly because of economy of scale, but partly because of the ambitiousness of the machining and the fact that there's a lot of handcraft that goes into everything. It's a huge amount of legwork done by people, not by machines, not by, and I don't just mean literal machines, I mean like the great machine of the watch industry as it ticks and turns. And you put a watch like that out there into a community and okay, the negative voices are always going to be the loudest. And they need to be listened to with a pinch of salt. But what annoys me is when, <laughs> through a complete ignorance or an aggressive um, default position, a new watch is criticized for things that don't matter about that watch. And it would be like somebody criticizing the Mad One for having basically no water resistance and being made by a massive company in 2023 with like Asian components so they could easily have made it water resistant to 100 meters or whatever side of the case is like mineral crystal it's not easy to make that water resistant to anything people will complain and like you know chide it uh, just because they want to say something against something new something ambitious something that rocks the boat slightly and i think that it's really cool that the arc models don't fall foul of that yeah the movements are pretty basic but then that's a deliberate choice because it places the focus on the design but it's an interesting thing because we've gotten so used to in 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 you know 
the watch industry and especially watch reviewing that there are certain things that watches need to do. Like yeah. there's certain things. And of course, you know, if you review a car, it should be able to drive, of course. Yeah. But it's like a lot of the times, you know, you should review it on the merits of that watch, what that watch tries to be and what it tries to be, who it tries to be something for. Mm. It's exactly the same as if you're a movie reviewer going to see, you know, a a Scandinavian drama about, you know, uh, social life in the 1960s, and then you go out of the theater saying there's not enough enough action. <laughs> you know, not enough explosions. Where's John Cena? Yeah, <laughs> like. Good question, but not that. Yeah, well, it, it it is a good question. We need a lot more, John. But <laughs> but you know, like it's a good que- question. Like sometimes you know you should review a watch within not just a category, but what inside that category, what how well it achieves its goals. And some watches also transcends categories. Yeah, like I would say the Arknot is basically you know also a watch that I wanted to try and with the brand trying to transcend categories that when people ask, what is it? Is it a sports watch? What What is it? It's an Arcanaut watch. Yeah. Like, I don't care what category you put it in. You know, if you're a reviewer and you put it inside a category, I, that that's, you know, your prerogatory, but I, I don't care really. Like I, I want just to create watches that I like and, they can transcend the categories as see fit, basically. But yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap up the episode. So just to reiterate, if you are interested in picking up one of the new Dark Matter Colors collection, the pre-sale goes live at 7 p.m. Central European Summertime on Saturday, September 23rd. So that's in two days' time. If you want to be part of that pre-sale, you need to sign up for one of the model-specific mailing lists, which you can find at Arcanaut.watch by clicking on either the Badger Blue, Gamma Green, Hornet Yellow, or Pongo Orange model and entering your email address. One week later, the remaining pieces will go on general release at 7pm CEST on September 30th. You can pick up pieces either from Arcanaut directly or from their US retailer, Collective Horology. Also, if you participate in the pre-sale, there's something really cool, which is you might get a ring. Oh, yeah. That was actually all first made only for Arcanaut team members. And then we had the idea, why not give that to the first 10 owners in the pre-sale? Right. So if you want to get your hands on one of these incredible sterling silver signet rings. Clocktopus rings. Clocktopus rings. Yeah. With the uh, the scary Hydra-esque clock-eating skull monster on them if you haven't seen it check out the instagram there'll be a post going up tomorrow so you'll be able to see it in all its glory then you need to be quick off the mark and get your order in fast because although there will be 15 of each color made available during the pre-sale period only the first 10 sales across all colors and across all platforms will receive one of the silver signet rings and there is more if you are one of the 60 backers of the pre-sale you'll be entered into a raffle whether you're one of the first 10 or otherwise, everybody gets entered into the same raffle to win one 18-karat gold version of this signet ring. 
And that's the stupidest decision we've ever made because that's going to be insanely expensive. Yeah, it's, it's idiotic. You know. But it's going to be really fun. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. It's actually going to cost more than a watch, probably. <laughs> it's got to be expensive. It's going to be close. Yeah, it's going to be close. Okay, if you would like to get in touch with me, if you have any questions for Anders, you can contact me on Instagram at RobNuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. My regular co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, can be found there at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Or you can contact us via our emails, either rob or alon at therealtime.show. In addition to that, you can contact us via the contact form on the website, www.therealtime.show. If you don't mind, please like, follow, share, subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a nice, shiny, positive review that will help greatly when it comes to building the brand of The Real Time Show. Until next time, stay safe and keep on ticking. 